Amen. Thank you. Well, I hope that you all are doing well, and I hope that you've had a, a good week. This morning, we are beginning a new book. We're going to start uh, Nehemiah uh, this morning. Uh, usually, historically, Ezra and Nehemiah were understood uh, to be read together and understood to be uh, together. Ezra, if you might remember, began back in 537 B.C., when King Cyrus decrees that Israel should be sent back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, in order to rebuild the temple. And that's what they did. They, they went back and they rebuilt the temple. And in 516 B.C., the temple was rebuilt. Last week, we ended with Ezra, and that happened to be about 458 Nehemiah now begins about 445 B.C., so we have about a 10-year gap between the two. It'd be almost like watching the sequel to a movie, and as the sequel begins, there's script on the bottom of the screen that says 10 years later. In Nehemiah, Old Testament history comes to end at, in Nehemiah in 445. 40 B.C. The primary events in Ezra was to rebuild the temple. The primary event in Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. Right? So these are significant and important to understand as we look at this new book, Nehemiah. I remember in college... A popular study at the time, or at least the first times I really was being engaged with it, was the study of leadership. Leadership in business, leadership in culture, leadership on sports teams, leadership in all different areas of life became very popular in the 90s. And so this study of leadership then became popular in the church. One of the big names of leadership that began to come on the scene in the area of the church was a guy named John Maxwell. We had to read a few of his books in, in college, and he wrote probably 95 books. I mean, they're everywhere. His biggest thing on leadership was that if a leader was going to be effective, if a leader was going to be successful and fruitful, accomplishing their goals and their purpose, as well as liked by those who follow them, then the, the best trait a leader is to have is to be a servant. And, and he took examples from the Bible, characters, and, and would apply it to leadership and understanding leadership. So he'd use guys like Moses and David, and he would expound on their successes and their failures, and he would be, then he would take out, he would draw out helpful tips and applications for leadership within the church, and then also was ways you can apply that to your everyday life. Whether you are a teacher or a business owner, or you worked in a factory or your family, you could apply those to your life. He probably also had a book on Nehemiah. In fact, I know he did. I looked it up. 
And there's a good reason. Because in Nehemiah, we see one of the clearest examples of all the Old Testament of godly leadership and what godly leaders do. Nehemiah was a leader. And if you've ever read or if you ever studied the book of Nehemiah or if you haven't studied the book of Nehemiah or read the book of Nehemiah, then pay attention to that. Leaders are to stand out. Leaders make history. And in a time where there's such a vacuum of leadership, even though people exist in positions of leaders, doesn't make them a leader. There is a need for real leaders to shine. And what we notice throughout the Bible, and even in Christian history, is that the Lord raises up leaders in the time that he has for them. The Lord raises up leaders to lead his people to do his work, to accomplish his will, to call his people back to faithfulness. God raised up Ezra. God gave Ezra intellect and position in the kingdom of Artaxerxes. God gave Ezra lineage as a priest with authority. He gave them the ability to preach and proclaim and teach the scriptures to the people of God and to call them to faithfulness in serving God. In Nehemiah, we see a godly leader raised up by God for such a time as this. This morning, we're going to look at Ezra, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to, we're going to do the whole book, or the, excuse me, the whole chapter. You guys would be surprised if I could do that. But we're going to read this morning, we're just going to read the beginning, and then throughout the sermon, I'll read the rest of the passage. So let's start reading Nehemiah chapter 1. Start again, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. And Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped. Who had survived the exile in concerning Jerusalem? And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. We'll stop there and we'll continue to read throughout the message this morning, but this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear 
and to see his holy inspired inerrant word for his glory and our joy this morning. Amen. Just like in Ezra, we, were, we are introduced to this man, Nehemiah. Nehemiah's name means the Lord comforts. The Lord comforts. And verse 1 tells us exactly whose words these are. Who is writing these down? Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God is Nehemiah. This book is mostly written in the first person, as we've already seen in just these first four verses. There's a lot of eyes written in the first person. We know nothing else about the background of Nehemiah or the stages of how Nehemiah was, was raised to the position of influence that he was in. We know when this began, when this occurred, in the month of Kislev. In the month of Kislev, which is, for us, November and December. It's kind of in between the two. It's the 20th year, which means it's the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. We'll see that later in chapter 20, King, of Artax King Artaxerxes, who we are somewhat familiar from Ezra, right? Same king from what we saw in Ezra. Nehemiah, like Ezra, also had position in the Persian Empire. He was in service of the king. You can look down to the very end in verse 11. It says, tells us that, that he was a cupbearer to the king. Now, this doesn't mean that he was a dishwasher, carrying around cups to be washed. But he was in this position of to be highly trusted by the king. The cupbearer would, would ensure that the, the cup's king was, the cups, the king's cup, excuse me, was free from poison. You see, when, when kings became very powerful such as uh, the king of the Persian Empire, which at the time was the greatest empire in all the, in all the world, external threats were not as much of a threat to them personally. Maybe a, a threat to their authority and their power to be able to maybe lose place. They had to worry about that. But their greatest threat and safety was not from outside enemies, but from friends from family members, from, from counselors that, that, that they trust, from people who are within the kingdom who secretly want to take out the king and take power for themselves. History even records for us that there have been many attempts on kings throughout history like this, with poison. Even the king, uh, King Darius, had an attempt on his life with poison. And there's a good reason. Right? Being poisoned, it's an easy way to kill someone without tracing it back. At least back then. Don't try it now because they'll trace it. Kings had to be paranoid because they never knew who wanted to off them. So they had cupbearers. Nehemiah was a cupbearer, and his sole job was to trace exactly where the wine that the king would drink was coming from. 
from, from the vine all the way to the king. He needed to know exactly whose hands touched that wine, where it came from, what barrel, what, wherever it came from, what vase or whatever it may be. He needed to know where it came from. Even the cupbearer at times would even test the wine themselves to make sure that there was no poison in it. This was a highly trusted job by the king and a highly honorable position to be trusted by the king with his very life. So like Daniel, like Shadrach, like Meshach, like Abednego, like Ezra, and now like Nehemiah in this great terrible time of being in exile, these Jewish boys were raised up and given position in a secular kingdom to be used by the Lord to be a great blessing to his people during exile and captivity. Understand this, because we can hear it in Nehemiah's prayer that we will read in just a few minutes, that the Lord loved his people and that he cared for his people, that he preserved his people as a remnant during exile. We need to hear that in order to understand in our own lives how God preserves and cares for us. Nehemiah was with the king in the city of Susa. Ezra was with the king in Babylon. Susa was a, um, a city king, uh, particularly Artaxerxes, would go to in the wintertime. It was a city that's uh, in what we would call Iran now. The king had a palace there. It was built by Darius 50 years earlier. And he was there with the king doing his job. But in verse 2, everything changed for Nehemiah. The catalyst for him was when his brother comes and visit him with another group of people who had previously gone back to Jerusalem. And now they have come back most likely as royal emissaries back to the kingdom to tell the king what's going on in the land. And Nehemiah wants to know. He wants to know what's going on. He wants to know how the people are doing. He wants to know the condition of the city. And at this point, all Nehemiah would know is, yes, the city was destroyed, but his people have gone back to rebuild it, starting with the temple. The temple had already been rebuilt, and he knows that, and that's good. But on his mind is, what about everything else? And the report back to him is, everything is still in disrepair. It's still destroyed. Now, here's the thing. This isn't the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar had done. This isn't the destruction by, by Nebuchadnezzar in the original exile. Their answer, verse 3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken and the gates are destroyed by fire. They're not referring to what Nebuchadnezzar did. They already know that Nebuchadnezzar did that. But this destruction and this setback is actually referring back to something that we read and we dealt with in Ezra chapter 4. Do you remember in Ezra chapter 4 where we kind of had this, 
this weird letter uh, from a hundred years earlier that was inserted into the passage as an encouragement to the readers to be continually faithful because they already knew that the temple had been repaired. So if God had repaired the temple and helped them in that work through great opposition, that the Lord would help them in their current opposition to rebuild the walls. And the letter in Ezra chapter 4 was a complaint to the king that these pesky Jews are rebuilding the city walls so that they would rebel against you, king. Artaxerxes heard this letter and he wrote back to them, well, I don't want that. I'm going to look and I'm going to see if they're supposed to be doing these things. But in the meantime, stop them from rebuilding. Stop them from rebuilding. And they not only stopped them from rebuilding, but they destroyed everything that they had already built. Which is why these guys, verse 3, sounded so urgent. These events for Nehemiah are recent. And it just so happens by the hand of the king that he is serving has done this. Verse 4. Hear Nehemiah's response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. His immediate reaction of being jolted by this news, being disappointed by this news, was to sit down to weep in sadness and disbelief, fear, maybe even a little anger and another range of emotions. This verse sums up the state of Nehemiah, not just for one day or two days, but for several days he prayed and fasted. In chapter 2, we'll realize that those several days is actually three to five months of praying and fasting. Does this response shock us? Does it really surprise us? In some ways, maybe it does. Why would Nehemiah weep because of a city walls have been destroyed or not being rebuilt? We don't have walls around our cities anymore. The wall around Jerusalem represented protection. It represented a people. And he wept. And he was jolted by this news. But in another way, this Nehemiah's response doesn't shock us or surprise us because this is the response of, or a mark of godly leadership. In fact, what we see here is is God raising up this man to lead his people. You know, there are times when action is required. 
There are times when action is required immediately. And sometimes we can be guilty of only praying when action is needed. But this was a time when prayer was needed and necessary. Prayer was not his last resort. It was his first. And he prayed for three to five months that the Lord would use him. That the Lord would rebuild his people in this city and that the Lord would use him in any way to do that. Often and tempting it is to believe that prayer is our last resort. That prayer is really just doing nothing. We are mocked these days for saying we will pray. The world believes it is nothing. We are tempted sometimes to believe that it is nothing. But when Nehemiah is showing us that as a godly leader, prayer is action. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And why did Nehemiah take it to the Lord in prayer? Because he had a firm belief in the word of God that God was sovereign and that he could raise him up and his confidence was completely in the Lord. Prayer is far from doing nothing. When we pray, we are praying, as verse 4 tells us, to the God of heaven. To the God of heaven. And this morning, for the rest of our time, I want us to look at what this godly leader praise. And I want us to be encouraged by it and learn how we are to pray. There are two very important elements in prayer. First, there is the spirit of prayer. The spirit of how we pray. The spirit by which someone prays is vital because the Lord knows our hearts. In the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, the people are accused of doing everything externally that looks good in prayer. The prayer sounded great. It sounded biblical. It sounded godly. They had their hands up. They knew when to, to bow down. They knew everything how to pray. But as the Lord tells them that their hearts were far from the Lord and that he would not hear his prayers. Here we read in Nehemiah the emotion of Nehemiah. We hear the, the spirit of Nehemiah behind his prayer is a heart of love and desire and trust in the Lord, a confidence in the Lord, a bright brokenness, a biblical brokenness over their sin and over his own sin in a heart 
for the glory of God. That's a spirit of prayer. But second, there is the form of prayer. Nehemiah's prayer shows us the importance of form or model. His form is quite familiar. It's biblical. And it's a form by which we should pray. Some of you, probably all of you, have heard of the Acts model. We talked a little bit about that in our prayer book a couple weeks ago, months, maybe by now. The Acts model, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And this is a really good example of that model prayer. Pretty much this model of prayer. So first, Nehemiah prays adoration to God. It's a prayer of the majesty of God. Look at verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people for the people of Israel, your servant. It might sound a little redundant for Nehemiah to, to start off his prayer telling God about God. Right? And look, that's what he's saying. He's, he's telling God about, about God. That might, that might sound redundant. It sounds redundant when we tell one another about one another the things that we obviously know. But in prayer, he starts off this way for a very good reason. He's telling God about God because he's reminding himself of who God is. He's reminding himself who God is. As we pray, and we pray this way, we pray reminding ourselves of who, God's is, who God is. And when we do that, then what it does, it puts everything else in perspective. It puts everything else in perspective. It puts everything else in place. It puts all of our needs in place. It puts all of our sins in place. It puts all of our desires in place. When we start with the place of re recalling and remembering who God is. So that in times of trouble, we're placing our hope firmly on who he is. And everything else gets put in, put in place. When we begin to study a passage of scriptures, one of the first questions we should ask ourselves is, what does this passage teach us about God? And that teaches us how to pray. From the beginning of this prayer, Nehemiah is teaching himself, recalling and remembering to believe it of who God is. And even though everything else may seem to be crumbling, 
and we're out of control. There's nothing that we can control. I can't control these walls to be built. But you are the Lord, and you are the God of heaven, and you remain the same. You have not changed. You are sovereign over all creation. In fact, that's what he is saying here. Oh, Lord, God of heaven. God, there is the name Elohim, which expresses God's sovereignty. It expresses his power. It expresses his might and his strength and his majesty. He is the God of heaven. And that doesn't mean that he is at some distance. He's not at some distance where he is so far away, where he does not care about his people, or he has neglected his creation, even in the exile. God, you are not far from us. You are not far from us. He is almighty. He is the creator, the sustainer who rules and reigns over the universe for his glory which means he rules over all things, all purposes, and all kings. But you know, I also skipped something there, didn't I? Oh, Lord, God of heaven. The proper name of God, Yahweh. And that expresses the glorious covenantal relationship and love God has for his people. So you put that together. And God is sovereign and powerful and great and majestic, almighty. And he keeps his covenant and love and steadfast love. All his sovereignty and power is expressed in his covenantal love and care for his people. The Lord has fulfilled his covenant to his people over and over. He has loved his people. As Nehemiah says, he is great. He is great, which means none can compare. He says that he is awesome. When you dwell upon him, if you start going beneath looking at the riches and the depth of the knowledge of God and knowing him, then the doxologies of Paul make real good sense to us in exclaiming of his greatness and of his glory. That's all inspiring. That's awesome. It's amazing. He goes, O Lord, our God of heaven. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father. That all of that sovereignty and power and might, love, 
is seen in that relationship as Father. Uniquely as Christians, that totally changes the relationship we have to Him. That we are no longer slaves, that we are no longer orphans, but as adopted sons. As Galatians 4 and Romans 8 teaches us very clearly. Commentator Derek Kidner says about this title, as he starts his prayer, that title, he says, the title reflects the character of God, not only for its encouragement of love and greatness, but also for this majesty to put man in his place. It puts us in our place. Brothers and sisters, our God, our Lord, our Father who is in heaven is sovereign and he is personally overseeing all of our lives. We worship the same sovereign God that Nehemiah is praying to. We pray to the same sovereign God that Nehemiah is praying to. Open your prayers like this. Cultivate a deep understanding of the character of God to firmly pray for his adoration, for his majesty. Second, Nehemiah prays to confess the sins of his people. His father, too. I know himself. Now, we've been talking a lot about sin and confession and repentance over the last uh, past couple weeks, so we won't belabor this point. However, we cannot get away from the fact of the necessity to confess our sins, our weakness, our weaknesses, and our deep need for forgiveness of our sins when coming before the Lord in prayer. Because when it puts us in our place, when we pray this way of adoration, it leads us to confess our sins. Not to ignore them, not to downplay them, but to confess them. Verse 6, continuing. He says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded before your servant Moses. He confesses sin on behalf of the people. We've seen this over the, over the past several weeks, the example of, of Nehemiah. That sin is corporate. And yes, sin is personal. Nehemiah understands personally that he is a sinner. That his father and his household are sinners. By nature, they are sinners. And so by confessing their sins and their sinfulness, they are asking for forgiveness of God. They are turning to him because he is the only one that can forgive them of their sins. He is the only one that can cleanse them of their sins. Ezra was a priest. And he prayed the same way. He couldn't atone for his sin. He couldn't atone for the sin of the people. But God could forgive their sins. The guys that came to Nehemiah didn't tell him of some specific sin that Ezra heard about. Something egregious, right? They don't tell him. They just say that there's, there's shame and trouble. 
And yet Nehemiah rightly makes the connection that their shame and trouble is connected to their sin. Their sin and our sin is directly against God. It's an offense before God. Disobedience to the word of God is an offense before God. Against his law, against God against his word. Again, what we said last week, we want to try to pinpoint our shame and our trouble on others. We want to look to external opposition like Artaxerxes, which was real, which was difficult, but as Nehemiah confessed, our sin is our biggest problem. Our greatest enemy is not Artaxerxes, but it's us disobeying your word. I know what God's word says, but that's the problem. The Times of London, back in the day, invited several authors to respond to a, to a question in an editorial page from these well-known authors at the time. And expecting lengthy answers from them so that they could fill their, their paper up from all of these great authors and their different perspectives. One of the authors invited to respond was G.K. Chesterton, a popular author at the time. And the question was to all of these authors is, what's wrong with the world? And this is what G.K. Chesterton wrote back. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. We come before the Lord knowing, as we've already rightly expressed his, his glory, his adoration, his majesty of who he is, that we are sinners and that we need him. And we always come confessing our sins before him. Why? Because it all lies back to who he is. Elohim Yahweh. Sovereign loving. Third, Nehemiah remembers the promises of God and he's thankful. Look at verse 8 and 8, and 8 through 10. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, keep my commandments and do them. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He remembers his word, God's word. And by remembering God's word, he's remembering God's promises. But also he's remembering God's warnings. The warnings of, of the consequences of their sin that they are 
literally experience experiencing in the exile. And Nehemiah is recalling the word of God. He knew the scriptures like Ezra. I believe he's thinking of Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 25. He's remembering this. When, you're, when, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. These were the curses of the covenant that they were already experiencing in this foreign land. But also, Deuteronomy 4 continues, verse 29. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the later days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. And he will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. I believe that Nehemiah is remembering and recalling these promises of God. He's praying, do you remember this promise? Let's humble ourselves and seek him who will be found, who will deliver us, who is merciful, who hasn't forgotten us. Remembering these promises of God and that he's fulfilling before us. Verse 10 of Nehemiah goes further. It says, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. He is recalling God's redemption. Now, I, I believe that Nehemiah is pointing back. I believe that Nehemiah is pointing back to the Exodus where, where the, the Lord had delivered his people had redeemed them, had delivered his people out of Egypt. And they celebrated that and they instituted that by the, by the Passover lamb. And they continue to observe year by year, which before Christ is the strongest example of redemption in the Bible. And the Hebrew word, that is used here for redeemed indicates that. It's as if Nehemiah is praying, God, you cannot abandon these people whom you have redeemed. 
You cannot go back on your word without denying yourself. How then are we to pray? Pray remembering the promises of God. Pray remembering how God has redeemed us. We learned from our book on prayer, already talked about, but we learned that prayer is calling upon God to do what he has promised he will do. So we do not pray according to what God has done in the Exodus or the Passover, but we pray according to what God has done in his Son, who has redeemed us to be forgiven of our sins. Our redemption was not out of a foreign land or from a foreign enemy, but from the greatest of enemies, the enemy of sin and death. And he has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and into marvelous lights, into eternal redemption by the blood of Jesus, according to the riches of his grace. I believe Nehemiah was thinking back to the Exodus but certainly in God's wisdom and his word, he is pointing us forward to the redemption that God's people will have in his son, Jesus Christ. Pray knowing the scriptures. Pray being firmly rooted in the gospel and the redemption of Christ and the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Lastly, Nehemiah ends with an important supplication and a very important request. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He ends his prayer in verse 11, now not with Elohim or Yahweh, but with Adonai. O Lord. This name of God distinguishes God's authority. So in his prayer, he's drawing us to understand God's sovereignty, his covenantal relationship, and love for his people. But now God's authority to answer prayer according to his glory, according to his will if he desires. Nehemiah, as he did before, asked the Lord to hear the prayers of his servants, of his people. Makes that request. But he also makes the request to, to, to have favor upon him to have favor upon them in this time, the time that he has to do right now, to continually be the faithful cupbearer to this king. But give me favor, give me success in whatever I do before him, Lord. However the Lord desires to use Nehemiah, he asks for mercy in the sight of this man before this king before Artaxerxes, 
Again, firm belief in the power and the authority of God who can change the hearts of kings. You see, Nehemiah is knowing, knowing what he knows about the people's plight in Jerusalem, still being a good cupbearer. He still has a job to do. Nehemiah is still expected daily to bring the cup to the king. But he petitions the Lord to use him for his glory. And if it's to change the heart of the king, to grant mercy and sight of the king for him, that he would be used as a blessing to his people, then so be it, Lord. You have the authority to answer that prayer. That he is sovereign. God is sovereign. And all his ways are good. And we do not understand all his ways, but until things become clear to Nehemiah, all he could do is wait and pray and do his job. And be faithful. There is certainly something for us to learn here about waiting and patience. And yet, I think there's something more about praying that the Lord would sustain us in faithfulness. Faithfulness in our, in our, in our duties. He prayed and made his request before the Lord to give mercy to live faithfully in his day. What we have seen here this morning about Nehemiah as a leader, as a godly leader, is one who prays. And he prayed for the adoration of God, for the confession of sin, the remembering of the promises of God from his word, and he makes supplications before the Lord. I know that we're all not called to be a Nehemiah. We're all not going to be called to be a bold leader that will lead God's people. But each of us can certainly, in our own lives, cultivate a humility that prays like Nehemiah. When we reflect on Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, sent to be our Deliverer, our Redeemer, the one who though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen, the one who has brought us into his chosen place, to make his name dwell in us. When we reflect upon him, who has not only taught us to pray, but has shown us the example of prayer, then may we be a people of prayer. Not as a last resort. Not just because it's the only thing that we can do. But rather because it's what we do. We pray. Let's pray. Our Father, our Lord God who is in heaven, who is the creator and sustainer of the whole universe, there is none like you, there is none beside you. You are holy, holy, 
holy. You are righteous and you are good. You have shown us your greatness and your power. You have shown us your steadfast love through your word and have manifested yourself in your son, Jesus Christ. Yet, Lord, we are sinners. By our very nature, we are sinners, and therefore we have all sinned. We have all fell short of your glory. We have all desired other things besides you. We have all gone after other things besides you. We have rejected and neglected your word. We've delighted in other people, in other things, in other desires, and have made them idols in our hearts. All of us have sinned. But, oh Lord, you have granted us forgiveness through your Son, Jesus Christ. And if we confess our sins, you who are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins will cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. So we thank you, O oh Lord. Knowing from your word, your promises, that he who began a great work in us will see it to the end. That this mortal body in this flesh which is failing and is corrupt will one day be made new. This world of corruption will be judged and it will be made new. Where we will reign with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Affix our eyes on your promises in your word. Give us grace, mercy, and favor to live faithfully in our day. To be bold in righteousness, to be courageous with the gospel, to stand firm on the solid rock, the word of God, and to be lovers of truth. Bind us together as your church, your people, your redeemed, to be shining lights, to be salty in this world. Let us walk in the spirit and not in the flesh, that we would forsake sin and take upon righteousness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your Son. We thank you for your church. Hear the prayers of your people, your servants, O oh Lord, and answer them according to your glory and for our joy. Amen.